Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. It's Monday, February 21st, 24th, 2020. So tonight, obviously, is a very special podcast broadcast for me because we're talking about the release of my book that came out today. The paperback came out today. Uh, this weekend, the ebook version will be available through Kindle. And then the Audible version will, will be out in the, in the coming months um, where I'm going to do the recording of the, of, the, of the recording. So I'm excited about that. For some of you, some of the ideas here will, will, will of course sound familiar because my book is what I've been teaching for the last couple of years. It came to me in late 2018 that it was time for another book, that many of the stories, some of the concepts were an evolution of those from the journey of the heroic parent and, and, and broader, I think principally broader than just parenting. When I wrote the first book, I talked about this idea that the challenge in parenting is not really about parenting, not really about children. It's about uh, the challenge that we have with ourselves and how that extends to every relationship. I've also noticed something over the past couple of years with a lot of my teaching with the families that I work with directly where when I'm talking about, and I do emphasize quite a bit about the need, the ability, the effect of listening and hearing a child, people hear that as erasing themselves. They hear that as that one, like one mother said to me, a couple of mothers have said to me, something akin to the idea of, so then I turn myself into a doormat. And I'm reminded when people respond that way that I, I sometimes assume, uh, I, I don't speak it, but I assume that being ourselves is the first project. So tonight I'm going to go through the chapters as they lay out, some quotes from the book tonight, and just to give you an idea about what this is about. One of my very favorite things that somebody said about this, this was somebody who had, who had attended a couple of our therapeutic intensives. A woman said after she read a proof of the book, she said, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And I, I'd, I'd remembered that I'd wanted after each time attending my intensive, kind of a summary of the ideas and, and the things that I, I've learned. And this book was just that. So I, I thought that was one of the, that was something that I was really treasured, really grateful that, that she heard that, that the work that we do therapeutically with all of you, with your children, with you through these broadcasts is contained in this book and it's an evolution of the first book. I like to talk about the title the, the, the title comes from two places, actually. The Audacity to, to Be You came from a feeling I had, actually, when I was watching the musical in, in New York City last year called Hadestown. And there's a moment in the musical, musical where, where Orpheus is going to find his, his long-lost love in, in Hades. And the muses are whispering in his ear, the, the fates, excuse me, are, are is whispering in his ear, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you can be doing this? And I, I so resonated with that feeling, that, that voice in my ear. Even the idea of, of publishing a book or going out and speaking or, or going on a, a television show or a radio show to kind of share the message of mental health that we talk about at, at Evoke, especially when doors open where I'm about to have success, I hear the whispers in my ear of who do you think you are. And I was talking to somebody not long after I saw the show, a celebrity who, who does a lot of speaking around addiction, and as we were chatting just before she walked on stage in front of several hundred people, she said, I still always have this feeling like I don't have the right to be up here. And, I, and so the audacity is that feeling of being ourselves, of, of being who we are. 
The horrible rotten self is a phrase that my therapist introduced to me many, many years ago. And it's really just being a person. You know, the, the, the shame filter that we have inside our heads tells us that it's our horrible rotten self. And so in a way, it's kind of leaning into it, right? Stop trying to fight with it and say, okay, I accept the fact that I have a horrible, rotten, imperfect self. And when we accept that idea, then we are free. We are just free to be who we are. So that's a little bit about where the title comes from. Being human is a messy thing, right? Developing a self is a messy project. Supporting children to develop a, a healthy self is a difficult, complicated, uh, exhausting process. And then that's really what we're asked to do in our, in our parenting role. I love this quote here that says, if anyone tells you that a certain person speaks ill of you, do not make excuses about what is said of you, but answer, he was ignorant of my other faults, else he would have mentioned those, he would not have mentioned those alone. There is a freedom and a liberation that comes from accepting our humanness, right? And then we start to, and I'll talk about this as I go along tonight, if we accept that, right? If we, we make peace, learn to love, learn to sit with that self that our brain tells us is a horrible, rotten thing. If we make peace with it, then nobody can use it against us, right? There's this, uh, there's this power that comes from embracing yourself. And then you can start to set boundaries and make decisions, not based on the tenuous ground of being right or good, really, really harmful places to come from, to, to want to be those things, to need to be those things in our relationships, in our lives, because it leads to inauthenticity. It leads to, to serving the ego. It leads to all kinds of problems. If we just accept the horrible, rotten self, then we can just set a boundary because. And then when someone tells us, like our children or our spouse, that we're crazy, our response is, what's your point? That's a given. You have no idea of the level of craziness here. And so there is just a, a love and a peace that comes from this process. I'll talk about this a, a little bit later, but how do we develop that? What, what process can we go through to develop that, that peace, that, that sitting with yourself? Like I said, we make decisions and learn as we go. And most importantly, find somebody who can stand it, who can stand you. Because I have set sat in a room with my therapist for the last 22 years where she tolerated me. All of the, the mess of my separation, all of the poor parenting decisions, all of the crazy ideas, all the relationships at work that I had that I, I was stuck in, I, all of that. Because she sat with me patiently, without anxiety or stress, without a need to fix anything, I have learned to, to some extent to sit with myself also, to, to be me. So when people always ask me, how do you do this? My answer is you find somebody who can tolerate you. And that's a rare attribute. That's a rare characteristic. I was talking to, in fact, one of the, the, the students that I make mention of in, in the book, and we were reconnecting um, recently. And I, I shared with him, I even apologized for some of the things that I had done when he was my student, my client which he took gracefully and told me that some of the things that I said and did weren't, didn't feel kind to him, didn't feel loving and patient and compassionate. And so I, I, I made that effort to just say, I'm sorry. But he said to me, and I shared with him a, a paper I'd written on it. In fact, one of the chapters in this book is based on the ideas 
from that journal article that I wrote with my wife. And I shared it with them. I said, this is my idea about kind of what I'm learning. And I'm spending my time now at Evoke and other programs that will listen to me to try to teach this way of doing therapy where your, your principal fuel or tool for change is compassion and love. And he kind of took it. He said at first kind of reluctantly, suspiciously. And then he read it and he reached back out to me recently and he said, hey, I'd like to talk again. Because I've been thinking about my therapist's anxiety about trying to fix me. And I think there might be a problem there. So I, I think it's a, a, a rare person, even a rare therapist, who can let go of the anxiety to fix or to be a good therapist or to be a good husband or to be a good wife or to be a good mother or father or child. So I start where we, we must start. I start with the idea of finding you and what does that mean? It is the first project. It's the primary responsibility to find out, to define the edges of yourself. And it's a life's journey. I'm 51 years old. I know a lot more than I did when I was 41 about myself, a lot more than 31 and so forth and so on all the way back. But I expect that I'll continue to learn about myself. It's one of the reasons why I sit still with that same therapist, who, by the way, wrote the foreword of this book and, and has cited several times in it. I sit with her. I share myself with her. She, she reflects back compassion and love, and I become okay with the parts of myself. That, that, that sometimes I find despicable, unlikable, unacceptable. And, and when she does that, there's a kind of grace that comes, a kind of understanding and compassion that comes that, that helps me to heal, to move through it. So that's our first project, all of us. And all of our relationships with everybody else and everybody else's issues will be based in part on the relationship that we have with ourselves. Another principal idea of this book, again, it's, it's an evolution of what the first book talked about, is that all of our decisions come out of that truth about who we are and what we feel and what we need, what we want and what we don't want, what we love, what we don't find acceptable in our lives. All of our decisions come out of that. So often as a therapist or a parent coach, people want advice. Usually it comes in some form of the question, what should I do? And if I ask them what they mean, then they say, essentially, this is what everybody thinks, to get the good, the outcome that I want. First, I, I, I tell them that I'm not sure we can control the outcome, ultimately. Um, second, I, I, I tell them, remind them often that the game is kind of rigged. You're kind of set up to lose. And, and lastly, then you get to choose how to lose. And you get to, if you make this your project, maintain yourself. So divorce, staying together, sending your child to a program, quitting a job, right? Taking guitar lessons. These don't necessarily change anything. They don't solve the problem. When somebody's asking about divorce, I always say, it's not going to solve anything one way or the other, necessarily. Not necessarily. But it will arise out of your truth. If you decide that this is not okay with you anymore, then the decision to leave rises out of that. And if you decide that you can find a different way to be and to love, a different way to be in a relationship with this person, 
and still maintain yourself, then you stay. But I can't and wouldn't want to give advice on, on one decision or, or another. That's not the way that I think about it. So decisions come out of the truth. They don't necessarily define or solve or, or, or make us more enlightened or not. You can't fake it, this process. This is about, and this book says it over and over again, it's about a different way of being, a new sensibility. It's about being in the world and in relationships in a different kind of way with people that does make a difference. Things do shift and change. Clients change. Spouses respond. Children respond. We've got to be careful not to, to think about it in terms of controlling others, but it does happen. And sometimes people leave. And sometimes new people come. But in the end, what you will have is your people. The people that are around will be your people. You can't fake it, but you can make it your practice. Make it your project. Make it the, the, the greatest gift that I think we can do for our, our family, for our children, for our spouses, is to make our mental health our primary project. We have spouses that are neurotic and depressed. We have children that are abusing substances and anxious, right? That have tricky relationships with food and with sex and with all kinds of issues. Those people are in our lives. But the thing that we can do to contribute to their health and well-being most effectively is work on ourselves. I quote Ram Dass in the book, the simple quote that he says, I can do nothing for you except for work on myself and you can do nothing for me except for work on yourself. Did I say the same thing twice? I don't know, but I think you know what I mean. Chapter two is about finding others. It, it, I think it's fascinating. I said this when I did a, a podcast or a broadcast on Harriet Lerner's book the other day, The Dance of Connection, that when you start talking about connection, the first thing that you talk about is boundaries, right? Boundaries are the, the, the place where we connect. The, the epitaph of the, the chapter talks about uh, this idea that I, I borrowed and, and quoted somebody and said that the distance, the, the healthy boundary is the distance between me and you in which I can both love you and myself simultaneously. So we start to understand what we need, what we can compromise, because relationships take compromise, right? They take sacrifice. But we start to answer the questions that only we can answer about how much is too much. You know, when people ask me that, how much is too much, my response is, that's the right question. And it's only one that you can answer. I have found my capacity in many ways through this work to get bigger with other people in my life, my family. And at the same time, I've also become much more clear about some things that I can't have, won't have in my life. It's not a perfect process by any means yet, but, but both of those things are constantly happening as we do this work. We're, we're getting bigger and more capable of, of holding other people that we care about, other people in our community with compassion and patience and curiosity. And at the same time, we're getting much more clear and capable at setting a boundary and saying, this is not okay with me and I can't participate in, in, in this or that. You find the edge of you, right? That's what this is about. I talk about um, 
if, if you don't know where the edge of you is, you don't know if you're responding to somebody else or to, to part of yourself. Am I responding to, to my need when I come to my children or am I, am I responding to their need? In simple conversations that we have with friends and spouses about relatively light topics, sometimes we were, we're responding to our anxiety to our past. So, so much of this is about getting clear and unraveling our entire lives. Now, I, I, somebody said to me recently, it was, it was actually mind-blowing. Somebody said to me, I, I talked about going to therapy for all these years, 22 years with this therapist, and excuse me, 20 years. I said 22 earlier. I, I should have said 20. Um, no, tw- no, it is 20. It's going on 22. It doesn't matter. Long time, couple of decades. I had other therapists before that in my life, and somebody said to me recently, you know, some people might think of that as a problem. And I hadn't heard something like that in so long. And I thought to myself, I can't imagine thinking about therapy as a problem. Thinking about somebody going to a a trainer and a gym as a problem. Somebody consulting with a dietician about what might work best for their body type. Whatever the, the, the idea is. Going to a classroom to learn about something academically as a problem. Especially as a therapist where, number one, I'm required to, I'm a father, so I'm required to carry heavy things with my children. Husband, carry heavy things with my wife. Therapist, of course. I train and supervise therapists in my program. I need a place where I'm not the biggest person in the room. I need a place where I can be me. I can let it all down. I talk about the exercise of the three circles. We talk about this in our intensives. There's an old broadcast on the three circles and boundaries that we have in the podcast library, the webinar library that you can look at if you want to. So I I talk about that idea of the, the circle of yourself. Your responsibility is to know your truth and to keep people out of your circle. We learn in the middle circle, the the relationship circle, what it means to communicate our truth, to make requests, to share feelings, to ask for things. And then we learn to relate to the other person's circle by staying out of it. It's it's, it's a, a common concern when I talk about this language of differentiation. For parents who, who think it, their, their primary responsibility is to kind of mold the child. Even that word mold is an interesting word. To, to raise the child up and to teach. I'm not talking about passive parenting. I'm not talking about hands-off parenting. I'm talking about a different kind of parenting. Right? I'm talking about a different way of, of being with somebody. I say in the book at one point, I say recovery from codependency, recovery from, which is really just a pop psychology term for uh, anxious attachment. Recovering from codependency is not about setting stricter boundaries. It's about setting better better boundaries. Boundaries that have the quality of the things that I'm discussing tonight. A more clear knowledge of self. A more clear knowledge of how I relate to, to you, to your issues. It's about a different way. A better way. Then I talk about meaningful love. Uh, This is a passion of mine. It really did come out of the first book. I I use the quote that that I got from Joseph 
excuse me, from from um, James Hollis's book that's a quote of Gandhi's that, that's fairly popular. I wish I'd had it for my first book because it would have been in there because I think it's so well kind of epitomized the idea. It's one of my favorite quotes and, and many of you have heard it, but I'm going to share it with you here. He said, a coward is incapable of exhibiting love. It is the prerogative of the brave. Projection, fusion, going home is easy. Loving another's otherness is heroic. If we really love other as other, we have heroically taken on the responsibility for our own individuation and our own journey. And this heroism may properly be called love. So in this chapter on meaningful love, I distinguish it between the, the, the thing that we call love, which is a feeling. It could be described as, as a passion or, or a feeling of warmth. In more extraordinary cases, it could be thought of a, as an obsession. Oftentimes, it can lead to control. But this kind of love that, that Gandhi defines is heroic. We, we've seen, we all know people, everybody listening to, the, to my voice, has examples of people who have expressed and experienced their feelings toward another person as love and have still done, done harmful and abusive things to them, unkind things. In the name of love sometimes. So if we know that, then love's got to be more than just a feeling. It's got to be something that makes a difference. It's got to be this thing that we talk about, compassionate listening. Right? Containing somebody else. Giving what's really giving. Seeing and listening to the other. And, and most importantly, it's got to be based on a solid foundation of what it means to be you. When, when, when Gandhi says that if you love other as other, you've taken on the responsibility of your own individuation, your own journey, that's what he's talking about. And, and the, heroic, uh, the heroic aspect of it, that's what the title of my first book is about. The heroic aspect of, of it is looking at yourself, going inside starting to ask questions that you were taught not to ask, starting to challenge the, 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 the message that you got growing up. And we have an instinctive response to that exploration and that challenge that was given to us by, by those around us, by the teachers and, and the, the, the dominant culture, the parents that, that we grew up with, which is don't do that. You're making excuses. You're going to get stuck. Why go back? This is blame. That, folks, is the defense. That's the defense. And we uphold it. We learn to, to serve it and other people. This work is not about going back to get stuck. It's about going back to understand, unravel, so that we can move forward, we can heal, and we can live. So I pick it apart Bit by bit, I talk about the, the first phrase, a coward is incap incapable of exhibiting love. It is the prerogative of, of the brave. It takes work. This idea that came to me several months ago, this idea that anxious attachment is not too much love. There's a euphemism that we talk about in our relationship where people describe codependent behavior as you just love too much. It is a euphemism. It's not what it is. Anxious attachment, codependency is not too much love. It's not enough self, period. That's what it is. We learn to sit with our discomfort and not knowing. 
The greatest therapists uh, are the ones who pride themselves on what they don't know. And, and when I work with parents, I, I, I watch them shift from this, this pressure that they have to have all the answer to this, this freedom of, of not knowing some answers and being okay with it, right? It's a powerful thing. And then we learn to sit with other people in, in their not knowing and in their discomfort. If you ever get the chance to do the exercise of, of regarding your inner child, it's a thought experiment where you imagine traveling back in time and talking to your, your five-year-old, your eight-year-old, your 10-year-old self. If you ever have a chance to do that in a therapeutic setting with, with some guidance, the child just needs you to hear them. They don't need you to talk them out of their fears. They need you to understand their fears. They don't need to have you talk them into a good mood. They need to listen to you in your sadness. I haven't seen the book, or excuse me, the movie about Mr. Rogers, but I read something about it not too long ago where somebody, there was this idea about Mr. Rogers that they had read. Somebody had, had, had written this idea about Mr. Rogers. And this person disagreed with their interpretation of Mr. Rogers because they said he would have never tried to talk a child out of their sadness. He would have sat with the child in their sadness. He might have shared his own grief and, and sadness with the child on the surface, of course, to let the child know that the child wasn't alone. This is the shift that happens in effective, what I call adequate therapy. This is a shift that happens in our lives if we do this work. Gandhi goes on to say, projection, fusion, going home is easy. Loving another's otherness is heroic. It's seeing somebody other than us. There's a line in there in the book that I use where I say, in order to understand someone, we've got to lose our mind. It's a fun way of thinking about the idea. I love this quote that I found. I couldn't find the author. But it goes simply like this. The first thing you should know about me is that I am not you. A lot more will make sense after that. In our family, we try to practice this idea. I use mushrooms and how much I hate them as an example in our family. So there's this saying in our family when dad or mom are trying to control the children, what they think and what they feel, my children will just say, I don't like mushrooms. As a reminder that I don't get to talk them into a feeling. I can set a boundary, but I don't get to decide how they should feel, how they do feel. The heroic journey, no matter what the details are, is always an inward journey of self-reflection. It's, it's awareness that is born out of facing feelings and painful emotions. Heroes are not unafraid. Heroes just learn to do things scared. I thought years ago that therapy could take away, would take away all of my fear. I tell a story in the book about when I realized it, it wouldn't ever probably, at least it hasn't so far, where I would have to learn to do things scared. I would have to take the ideas that I'm learning in therapy and go out in the world and practice them with my wife, with my children, friends, and do it scared. And, I, and I, when, I, when I'm too afraid, too overwhelmed by it, I also have compassion with that part of myself. The last part of his quote, if we really love the other as other, we have heroically taken on the responsibility for our own individuation, our own journey, and this heroism may properly be called love. The magical secret ingredient 
in love is our individuation, our sense of self, our awareness, and the complete, honest version of ourselves. That's the secret ingredient that most of the time people skip. And, and sometimes we, we, we get shamed to think it's not true. We, we, we are told at times to aspire to words like selfless. We are told that we are selfish. When I work with clients in the field, young people, and they're being accused of selfish, or the clients will ask questions like, what's, what's in this for me? I always teach my staff and the parents that I, that I work with, like, that's a great question. And, and I think they're wise to be suspicious because I think they've been taught things at times that weren't the best things for them. And, and ultimately, I aspire to be a father or a, a friend or, or a therapist that, that anything I would teach would only benefit your life. So I love the question of what's in it for me. And I have some thoughts and answers on the question. Even if that, that behavior is service and sacrifice, kindness toward others, there's wonderful things in it for you. Helping the old woman across the proverbial sidewalk, the, the street, there's a lot in it for you. There's also a lot in it for saying no, and I can't. And I have to rest or stay home by myself because I need some, some, some quiet time, some me time. If otherwise, it's not about love. It's about ego. <clears throat> it's about being a good husband, good father, good friend, good wife, good mother, good child. See, love has to come from a place of, of, of has to come from a fullness of sorts, so some, some kind of abundance for it to be love. If it comes from guilt and fear of rejection, then it's just coming to serve the, the ego and the esteem, and it's just a defense against being abandoned. I want to make up t-shirts that have the Evoke logo and just say, I got this idea because I was thinking about Bill Belichick. <clears throat> Excuse me, Bill Belichick. He's the, the, the very, very successful coach for the New England Patriots, and he has this simple slogan and it was on a t-shirt that somebody gave to me. It said, do your job. That's his message to his players. And he's one, he's one of the winningest coaches of all time. And his message is, do your job. And my answer is, do your work. You tell me the story about your husband and your wife, what to do, do your work. You tell me about the story about your children, what's the, what's, what to do, do your work. Considering a change in careers, you do your work. That's the answer all the time. Now, for those of us who have studied it a little bit or done some of our own work, we can share a little bit about what's worked for us, kind of what we figured out. But that's our answer, not yours. You can try it on for size, right? See if it fits. Stop trying to fix or change others. And in resetting your target, watch how you make a difference in the world. Sometimes when I'm teaching this to young therapists who are equipped with all these exciting theories and tools and skills, and I talk about what I talk about here, which is basically attachment theory. It's, it's basically human psychology and development, developmental psychology. When I talk about this, they say, but Brad, we're, we're, we're hired, we're paid to help people to, to change lives, to facilitate change in children and families. And my response is, this is how you do it. 
We can, we can reduce leadership, and this is a pretty crude reduction, but we can reduce it to two sensibilities. They're the two sensibilities that George Lucas talked about in Star Wars. And George Lucas got the idea from, from Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell is where I got the idea for, for a lot of these ideas in this book. So it's the same source. The, the two generating forces, the two sources are our fear or love. And Darth Vader's version, right? Fear, intimidation, anger, hatred, that side that, that, that George Lucas calls the dark side. That motive for change, it can be very effective in the long run. But it's also very, very destructive in the long run to, to who you are, right? It can motivate people. I see people, I myself have done a lot of things for a lot of years very well out of, out of shame and, and guilt and fear and anxiety. But it, but it wasn't until I started to do some of this work with in therapy where I realized that we could do it from a place of love, which then breeds courage and compassion and is just as effective, and I would even say more so, because it doesn't come with the negative side effects of destroying who you are. It has wonderful, powerful impact on other people. It's really about a different way of being. I wanted to talk about other relationships, typically, typically excuse me, specifically our intimate or our, our marital relationships. This is my favorite chapter title, Marriage, Psychosis, and Divorce. Because marriage's early romantic love is kind of like a psychosis, right? Falling madly in love. My better half, right? My everything. All of these phrases are, are, are actually phrases of psychosis. It's a loss of self, right? They're, they're romantic in nature, so we, we like them. We, we, we enjoy using them. They, they speak to the, to the intensity of, of that almost rabid obsession of early marriage. But they also make us blind. We ignore things. We, we, we ignore red flags. We don't see things. So we, we, we talk about what, what is a couple? What, what is a marriage? What's the, what's the job in a marriage? I think I've said this before, but when I met with a counselor with my old partners, he asked us, and we, you know, we, three of us were marriage and family therapists. And he said, what's your job in a marriage? He was making a comparison to our partnership. We had all kinds of ideas. And he simply said, what if it was your job to um, be happy? with your partner. How well do you think you're doing that? And I, I didn't understand that at the time, but it was, it was a shocking enough difference from what we were all thinking that it stuck with me. And now I realize what he's talking about. I love this video of Will Smith. I, I share this in the, in the book. Um, you can find it on, on Facebook and it's a little bit longer than this, but I had to cut it down a little bit. But it's Will Smith talking about his marriage with, with Jada Pinkett Smith. And from the, the background, it sounds like this was at a point where she was unhappy with him. She was upset with him. She was unhappy in general. So the video starts off with, with that vague context, I think, in the background. And Will Smith says, says this. He says, whether a person 
Whether or not a person is happy is utterly out of your control. We came into this false romantic concept that someone, that somehow, when we got married, that we would become one. And what we realized is what we were is that we were two completely separate people on two completely separate individual journeys and that we were choosing to walk our separate journeys together. But her happiness was her responsibility and my happiness was my responsibility. We decided that we were going to find our individual internal private separate joy and then we were going to we were going to present ourselves to the relationship and to each other already happy. I cannot underscore this principle more in important and intimate relationships, spousal relationships and and parent-child relationships. It is my job. My serenity is my responsibility. My peace of mind, my fundamental foundational joy is my responsibility. And if I make that my project, which means I'm going to have to battle guilt, I'm going to have to do things that I think are wrong, that I was told were wrong, right? That's going to happen. Then, But if I do that, then when I show up to my child, I can be there for them. When I show up to my wife, I can be there for her. When my wife and I got back together after the separation, one of the few things that we talked about was my attempt to try to be there for other people in my family, her included, at the cost of who I was and, and resentments built up. So, so the other option is I have to do some things that are healthy self-care. One of the things I've shared with you all is that when I go on a, on a business trip, I'll stay an extra night and watch a ball game. I'll sit and watch a Laker game or I'll watch a, a, a Broadway show. I could take the late night flight home and get home around 12 and start back up at work in the morning and I'm missing my children, right? Not being a great dad, missing my wife another night, not being a great husband. So I do battle with, with those sentinels that tell me what I should do and I take care of myself. And then when I get home the next day in the middle of the day, not tired, not right, after, right, right on the end of three or four long days of work, I have more patience for my family. I want to give to my children. I want to spend more time I had to start doing household chores just because it feels good. There's this idea, Joseph Campbell talks about this idea. I saw Esther Perel, some of you might know and like her. She wrote something about this in, in the New York Times last week or New York Times Magazine about this idea that we think that, that marriage is a lifelong love affair. And while it can be exhilarating and there are moments of joy, it's work. It takes sacrifice. It's a transformation. Right? That's what it is. And what what I can tell you I'm lucky to have is I have a partner who's taken on the same project. Her. She's taken on her as her project. I've taken on mine. I was joking with her the other day. She was going to therapy. She says she sees the same therapist I do. And I said, how about a couple session? We haven't had a couple session in eight or 10 years. And I was just kind of joking around. And I said, I'm just kidding. I said, I would never want to give away my session for a couple session. And, and I talk about this all the time. Like, I don't do couple sessions often. I don't do family sessions very frequently also. But all of my work is for my family, for my wife, for my relationships, and all because it's all about me. 
my stress at work, the difficulty I have in navigating relationships at work or my social life, they're all about me. I remember one time when I was talking about my wife and my therapist made this this idea, this comment. She said, we have to fall in love with the other person's dilemma. I said that to my wife the other day when I saw she was struggling with something and I said, I'm really in love with your dilemma. I, I know how hard it is for you in certain ways and I'm with it. I'm with you. I talk about this idea when, when, I, when people come to me for marriage therapy and they've come to me, it's usually when they're considering divorce or at least the relationship is at a critical point and then they're not very happy. Um, what I discover, what I, what I learned over and over and over again is that if we peel it back a little bit that those issues were in the courtship. The issues that, that now are, are, are straining you were actually the reasons you fell in love with each other. They weren't just things you ignored. They were actually the reasons you fell in love with each other. A very typical profile is, and, and I'll just use my own relationship, is I come to my wife early on in our relationship and I can sit with her, I can listen, I can soothe her. She's anxious. She likes being soothed. So I have the experience that, that she looks up at me or looks at me and says, you're wonderful. And that gives me the warmest feeling in the world to be thought of and told that I'm wonderful. And then I tell her that she's wonderful in, in my soothing of her. And that feels to her like love, like the most wonderful thing in the world. And that, that's, a, that's an okay thing to do for somebody. But I needed to take care of myself and she needed to take care of herself. And, and in my way, I needed to learn to say, no, I can't. Or I'm not willing to do this. And she needed to learn to say, I'll get some support from somebody else if you're overwhelmed or stressed or you can't do it. And that's a lifelong project, right? That's not easy to, to do. That's shifting every idea that the both of us have about what it means to be a person. It... it, it it, it made us fall in love. You know, it was why we fell in love. But if it doesn't shift and change, it becomes exhausting to me. And, and res resentment builds in me. And she ends up getting frustrated and resentful towards me at the same time. We have to learn what it taking and giving are. And I don't think we're very clear about that. We're taking a lot more often than we think. And we don't know what it really means to give. Thinking about talking in intimacy, in an intimate relationship, talking and sharing feelings with somebody. The person doing the talking tends to be at that moment taking. Be clear about that. If you're sharing your vulnerable self, your truth, you are taking because what you're asking for from the other is to be contained. I said this to my wife. I said, when you walk in a room, you're asking me to contain you. And I'm a pretty good container. I don't do a good job of asking to be contained because it's terrifying to me. I've had bad experiences with people not being able to contain me, starting with my mother and father. But those are the two tasks. And when you're the person doing the, the listening, that's a giving thing. That's why when you come to our parent support groups, when you're sitting and listening to somebody else's story, 
it takes energy. So we begin to, and I think this, I think that in intimacy, in talks about intimacy, I think the sharing part gets a lot of good press. I really do. I think people are pretty clear in pop culture that sharing is a wonderful thing. And it is a really amazing thing. Something I try to practice and get better at all the time. I think the thing that gets less press is the listening part. Because at the end of a difficult conversation, if, if for example, I'm the one doing the sharing with my wife and she's doing the listening and we're doing a pretty good job in each of those tasks, she walks away not feeling so great. I walk away feeling lighter. And when she walks away, we got to manage that too because she might feel a little bit hurt. And she has to practice not running away and I have to practice not running after her. Everybody who's been in a marriage knows what I'm talking about because it's all the same. The small brush strokes are different. There's different circumstances and cultural backgrounds, but we all know this stuff. It's just that nobody talks about it. I talk about this idea that divorce has to be an option. It has to be, because if divorce is not an option, you're going to be willing to live a miserable life or you're going to be willing to let somebody abuse you or you're going to let people into your life that, especially in your home, that um, will take away core pieces of what you need. I'm not pro-divorce. I don't, people come to me for couples intensives and couples work. I don't hope for divorce, but I say sometimes it has to be an option. Otherwise, you're just in prison. And your only, your only option is to try to manipulate the guard of your prison to be nicer to you. And, and, and it has to be an option, even as a thought exercise. Otherwise, I don't think love is possible if it's not a choice. Love can't be compelled and forced. It can't be held against us as a fear or a threat and still be love. I talk about mental health and how it's a continuum and we're all on it. I describe the wall that I often talk to you guys about, the walls that we build around ourselves to protect us from perceived threats. Those are our defenses. And that a very simple way of thinking about mental health is this. It's a wound, small or big T trauma, anything less than ideal, leading to a way of coping, right? All of this has an underlying and background of genetic predispositions, leading to a pattern of, of ways of coping, and those patterns become a diagnosis. It's that simple. It's not more complicated than that. I've, I've come to believe that loving and understanding as a therapist is the most important thing. Here's a quote from the new book. We look to our past, to our roots, not for excuses, but for understanding. And when understanding is found, there is a grace that comes. We don't look back and get stuck there. We look back so we can move through it all. We look back so we can heal and live. People who think this is, this is parent blaming or, or mother blaming or shaming, it's not. It's just describing what happens in each generation and how we heal from it. I share this, a different version of this, but I share this idea that I've shared with you before about what it means to respond to somebody in a safe versus an unsafe way. You know, responding in ways that make people feel safe. In other words, forming a healthy attachment 
modeling healthy attachment, it sounds like these phrases here. Thank you for telling me. Tell me more. I appreciate knowing. Glad you told me. Thanks. That sounds hard. I'm sorry. I'm here. I'm listening. You're not alone. That makes sense. Is there anything I can do? You must have a good reason. I'd like to understand. What can I do to, to help support you? Or I can relate. What it doesn't sound like is that's silly, irrational, unreasonable, stupid, ridiculous. You're overreacting. You're too sensitive. You're scaring me. We say that to our children sometimes, don't we? You're being selfish. You should. And then anything that comes after that. Don't pay them any mind. They're just jealous. Ignore them. You'll get over it. Look on the bright side. Why did you do that? Not to really understand. That, that why is not really to understand. That's just a way of accusing somebody of being an idiot or a numbskull. Have you tried this or that? Or I've heard therapists say that's just your depression, your insecurity, your anxiety, narcissism, your defensiveness, your rationalization, justification, so forth and so on. If there's one piece, one image in the book that I, that I would have people put up on their, their wall to, to look at, it would be that, those two graphics that, that I present in the book. And find and start to listen to yourself and others when they're responding to, to distress. I talk about therapists. This can be for therapists, of course, in their training, but also so you can recognize an adequate therapist. Therapists mustn't duplicate wounds of the past. This idea that, that therapists know what's, knows what's best for you and that they're here to fix you and to solve your problems. This is what my therapist calls good abuse. And she says she doesn't see how good abuse can fix bad abuse, and it doesn't. I told you about the story of my client who's noticing that his therapist is anxious to fix him. We begin to understand that the experience of therapy is you walk into a room and over time you tell somebody the truth about yourself. And you do so at the risk that they will respond the way that your parents are. Probably a little bit more skilled than your parents. Probably a little bit more, um, it's, it's dressed up a little bit better. But if it's the same anxious need to fix you, it fundamentally creates the same kind of distress unconsciously inside of you, which is something's wrong with you. So we understand that the experience of therapy is the relationship with the therapist. And for most people, you have to have some experience with what I'm describing to do it for somebody. But most of us haven't seen it. I debunk the idea of problem-solving therapy, right? Problems get solved through therapy, but I don't think of it as a problem-solving endeavor. It's really a, a repairing of the attachment, a kind of a reparenting experience. That's why it takes so long, or it has to be done in these, these very intensive immersive ways that we do them at Evoke, like the wilderness therapy program or the intensive program that we have. You have to learn to listen and not know the answers. Some of the best work that ever happens with therapists that I see is that they say sorry to their client, number one. They say, I don't know. I don't know what you should do. I remember I said this to a, to a young client. It's in the book. And he said, what should I do? It was at a family intensive. And he said, what should I do? And I said, I can't possibly know the answer to that question. And he looked at me surprised. He's like, no one's ever said that to me, at least no authority figure 
that I can remember has ever told me that they didn't know what I should do. And I said, yeah, I, I don't. I talk about this idea that clients have told me about being graduated from their therapist. Some therapists think it's their job to tell the client when therapy is over. And it goes something like this. They say to the client, I think you're okay. You're doing okay. You don't need this anymore. And clients tell me that when that happens, they walk away feeling very confused because while it seems to be a compliment, they walk away feeling discarded and, and somewhat humiliated, abandoned in some ways. And what I explain to them is that's the feeling the therapist was having, but they couldn't feel it. So they put it on you. You're walking away with their shame because they don't know how to be with you. Except for when there's a problem or a crisis crisis for them to solve or offer solutions. So they don't know that just sitting with you is okay. Because no one's ever shown them. Like I said, my therapist, what I've received from her is I've she's sat with me for decades. Tolerated me for decades. And because she has done that, I can do that more with myself now. I debunked 12 myths. I'm not going to go over all of these. I have to give you some reason to buy the book. Some of them are a recap of this book. Some are in the first book, but just kind of succinctly saying these are myths about human being. Things like guilt is your conscience. It's your job to make your spouse happy. Parents should make their children should make their parents proud. Things like um, the entitlement and narcissism of kids today stems from permissive parenting. All of these myths, I, I spend a paragraph or a few debunking. I, I end with the three keys to enlightenment. Number one, learning to be, be okay with being wrong and get really good at losing. And then you're free. Then you're just you. I was, I was talking to, to an athlete recently about this, this idea. And this, she was sharing with me that she, this is going to be a hard one for her because she's had, she played competitive sports in college and she said, I don't know that I can do that. And I said, you do. What does your coach tell you when you make a mistake in tennis? Do they tell you to dwell on it or just move past it? You learn the great athletes will tell you they have very short memories. And so that losing, making mistakes, then learning from them and moving on doesn't weigh them down. I was talking to my daughter and her volleyball team this weekend at a tournament. Lasted several hours and I pulled the team over and I said, guys, stop beating yourself up. Everybody has a bad pass once in a while. Everybody. So I don't want to hear you apologize to each other. You just go, go on to the next play. Don't beat yourself up and shrink. So we learn to just be okay being us. There's more to it than that, but that's essentially it. These are the things when I've thought of what does it mean when somebody's truly free, when somebody has what Sigmund Freud said, uh, the feeling that comes from successful therapy, and he, he said it was the freedom from their unconscious obligations. Freedom from their unconscious obligations. What do they have? And these are the three that I came up with. Number two, come to know your darkness and remain on speaking terms with your mental illness. Make friends with it. She's there. The depression, the anxiety, whatever it is, she or he is there. So sit with her. Listen to her. He or she also has something very wise, important, and powerful to tell you. That's what the symptom is saying. Something's there. 
Number three, learn to die again and again. Old context, beliefs, and relationships. <clears throat> we learn to let go. And we learn to die over and over again and to be born again in this life. When one of my clients said to me at an intensive, and I've heard this many times from clients who stick it out and keep coming back to the parent support groups or the podcasts or the work that we do, and they say, there was a point in which one of the things that you presented really destroyed some idea that I'd had, that I'd had my entire life. And I realized that all of my old beliefs were up for grabs. And that's a terrifying idea. This is how my book ends. Not the very ending, but close to the ending. I fell in love with this song by John Mayer called Walt Grace's Submarine Test, January 1967, last year. So here's how it ends. This past year, I fell in love with a song by John Mayer called Walt Grace's Submarine Test, January 1967. It tells the story of a man who decides he's going to build a one-man submarine in his basement, using, among other things, a blade from a fan. Others thought he was crazy, including his wife, and she told their kids as much. Everyone told him it couldn't be done and warned him that he would surely die. But he was looking for something new, something different, so he holed up in his basement and set himself on the project. Though the project could end up killing him, he knew that if he didn't try, he would be dead already. Sure enough, he launched the vessel in a particularly rough sea, learning to steer it as he went. And he sailed across the ocean. When he landed in Japan, he called his wife to give her the news. In this song, the basement and the waves are the dark caverns of the self. And the adventure across the rough sea, a rough sea with nothing but our simple self and a blade from a fan to propel us through life. But if we risk it all, we will know what Walt came to know. The only way one can come to know something, through experience. The chorus of the song is an invitation to all of us to embark on our own heroic adventure. And it goes like this. Because when you're done with this world, you know the next is up to you. So that is the audacity to be you. Learning to love your horrible rotten self. Paperback came out today on Amazon. The Kindle version will be out this weekend, Friday or Saturday. The audio version will be out in a few months. So I thought I would share it with you tonight. Thank you for joining me. I'm happy to take any questions if any have come up. No questions. So that means that you're all just going to go out and buy the book and find the answers there. Thank you for joining me tonight. I'll say one last thing. Somebody came up to me this weekend. Uh, almost made me cry. They talked about listening to the podcast that we have and, and sharing with, with friends. And this person said to me that some days when they're having a down day, they'll, they'll pop in a podcast that they've not listened to or maybe even one that they've heard. And what this person said to me touched me in a different way. She said, thank you for the work that you do and for sharing it with people. And I didn't think that they meant the, the studying and the school and the reading because lots of people do that. I, I assumed what was meant with the work that I've done personally because everything I have to tell you, really anything of, of worth, of value, of weight, it really comes from the time I've spent with my therapist. If you get something out of this stuff, these books, these, these webinars, podcasts, this program, if you get something out of it, um, it, it comes from sitting on somebody's couch for 22 years and, and doing what I'm talking about doing. 
Somebody said to me recently that I have a self-promoting response to the world. You know, I say, go to therapy. Right? That's my thing. And I say, it's true. It is a self-promoting idea. But I've also paid thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for my own work. For the work of my family, my children. For the work of, of our employees at Evoke. One thing that we do passionately and differently is we ask all of our managers and therapists to go do their own work and we will support them financially. It, it makes our profit margin a lot tighter. But it, it helps to heal people that are wonderful, beautiful, but broken people. And as and when they heal, then they're able to be there for their children and for the families that they work with in a more capable way. And that's all I want. When people say, what do you want? My, my response is, I just want to change the world. That's all. I just want to change the world. Somebody asked, are you doing a book tour? Do you have dates and locations? Follow me on social media. I will have a book tour. Um, I'm going to be in Los Angeles uh, coming up in the next few weeks. But I'll be going all over the world um, and, and be speaking um, at various places. I'm also open to, to events. So follow me or Evoke Therapy on social media and you'll see those dates there as they get planned. Someone says, the title suggested an approach to life when self-hatred is playing big. Is it the self that's the path to getting past self-hatred? Yes. Self-hatred is some, it's internalizing somebody else's. It, you know, there's a quote I use in the book from East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And he says, little boys think they invented sin. Every little boy thinks he invented sin. Virtue, they think they learned that it was taught to them, but they think they invented sin. The guilt, guilt and the shame that we all feel, it, we weren't born with it. And what can be more insidious is, especially when you have, quote unquote, good parents. If you need to be good parents, think about how harmful this can be. If you have loving parents, then you're sure that, you can, that you've created the self-hatred. I, I, I've told you, when my daughter did her own intensive work, and she was on a break, and the, and the owner of the program said, Are you Emma Reedy? I know your father. He's a wonderful man. She was in front of her peers, and she felt humiliated. Because how could this wonderful person, this amazing person, the author of The Heroic Parent, how could this person have caused the pain that she had just described in her personal work? So being good as a dad is really the enemy to helping the child. It's not the child's need for you to be a good dad or a good mom. Just to be a person, an imperfect, broken, human person. Owning your stuff, learning to apologize, being okay with being wrong, but, but being a self. And that's one thing I say in the book is, I say this to you all the time. In my way of teaching, you don't get to be right anymore. But you do get to be a self. And being a self is so much better. And to do that, you have to give up some ideas that most of us were taught. Next question. Um... Could you state how to buy the book on Amazon such that a donation is made to a vote? Oh, you can go. Uh, I don't know. I, I will f fix that. We have an Evoke Family Foundation, and I'll make sure that it's listed. If you go to the Evoke Family Foundation page, I'll go to this right here. Uh, the, the, the Alumni Foundation. Um, 
as part of the Amazon Smiles program. If you, you go through there and then you buy the book, then a percentage of the proceeds goes to help people who can't afford therapy. So thank you for reminding me of that. Let me go through a couple of upcoming events and then I'll take a last question or two. Next parent support group, I'll be in the Bay Area this Wednesday, February 26, 7 to 9 p.m. I have a box of my books too that I'm bringing with me. Um, I'll be at the San Mateo Marriott. Um, and then in Portland, Oregon, we'll have some therapists there Friday, March 6th. Uh, and then we'll be in Southern California in the Los Angeles area, Sunday, April 5th. For all of these events, please email Keisha at evoketherapy.com. That's K-A-Y-S-H-A at evoketherapy.com. Keisha at evoketherapy.com to RSVP or to find out more information. Our next parent workshop for all parents, we ask all parents to, to come to a workshop will be that are current parents, will be March 7th and 8th at our Ute, Southern Utah location. Again, Keisha at evoketherapy.com is the person to contact. If you want to do this work that I'm describing that the book talks about, come to an intensive. It's amazing. It's I do the work myself. Like I said, we pay for all of our employees, my family. The next one is full. On April 22nd, uh, we'll, we'll have the next opening. We're, we we might start doing two a month because these are starting to fill up. And then May 27th. I'll be doing one in England for a weekend. That will also find fill up. So register in advance. Uh, we'll, we'll be announcing another Finding You 2. We'll be doing a Finding You weekend in Los Angeles, April 17th through 19th. So go to our intent, email intensives at evoketherapy.com to find out more information or go to our website to look it up. Pursuits trips are adventure trips all around the world for families or young adults. Think therapy light or sober fun. We ask all current parents to go to any combination of six, at least six 12-step support groups or support groups. Any combination of Al-Anon, CODA, Families Anonymous, or adultchildren.org, you can go there. Alateen is for teenagers. Refuge Recovery is a Buddhist-inspired um, support group. Um, less of an emphasis on a higher power. You can also go to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI.org, to get free classes and resources in your area. All of these broadcasts are available on your favorite podcast app. On an iPhone or iOS device, use the podcast app. Android devices, we recommend the SoundCloud app, or you can go to soundcloud.com. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find Evoke Therapy programs using the handle at Evoke Therapy. And you can also find the intensives program on Instagram using at Evoke Therapy intensives. intensives. On Facebook, you can find Evoke by searching Evoke Therapy programs. The Alumni Foundation is also on Facebook by searching Evoke Family Foundation. We have a blog with new content each week. Both of my books are now available on Amazon. The Journey of the Heroic Parent and the new one, The Audacity to Be You, Learning to Love Your Horrible Rotten Self. Please share this if it makes a difference to you. Please give reviews there. It makes a big difference with how my book gets, gets received. Um, the Parent Alumni Foundation, like I said, on Amazon helps people who can't afford therapy. I'm excited about this next one. I'll be talking about uh, the book Meeting the Shadow. The Hidden Power of the Dark Side of Human Nature. I'll be talking about that next Monday, March 2nd at 7 p.m. Looks like some more questions have come in. Someone says, thank you for this broadcast. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the intensives. Just thank you. From listening to the podcast, regularly doing my work through therapy and intensives, I am learning to be a self. And just this week, I met with my young adult son for lunch and I was able to see him, contain him. He noticed and said so. This would not have happened without this work. Again, thank you. That makes a big difference. That makes a big impact on me to hear. Thank you for sharing that. 
That's I'm just doing for you what somebody has done for me. So thank you. All right, folks, I will talk to you. Thank you for sharing this with me tonight. I'm so excited to share this with the world. And I'm, I really love this next book. Uh, it's a series of, of, of essays on Carl Jung's idea of the shadow. Monday, March 2nd, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. And of course, all of these are available on the podcast the following day after they air on the webinar. Take care, folks. Have a great evening, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.